Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher, and I'm really excited to be here with Jim Lucino. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Good. You know, Jim, I bet you most people don't know who you are, and yet you've had an amazingly successful writing career. Uh, altogether, how many novels have you written? I, I counted at uh, least 30. Uh, yeah, probably. in the, I, I measure them by the foot, actually. <laughs> so a couple of feet worth. And then, but, and, you know, a lot, a lot of those were... Um, you know, adaptations of um, of different projects like the Robotech books or 22 books that uh, my friend and I adapted. So uh, not all of them are what you might call original novels. Yeah, but that's okay. I think, you know, every novelist comes to the career from a different point, you know, from a different area of their life. And so you came at it through through that area. But how many yeah. how many Star Wars related novels, like novels that weren't adaptations but were like in the Star Wars universe did you do? I counted about twelve of those. Um no, I think it's closer to nine. But I've also done a couple of um <laughs> what in the Star Wars uh franchise are called nonfiction Star Wars, like for uh DK Publishing, I did sort of an inside the world of Star Wars, and I did a, um, a book uh, related to Revenge of the Sith uh, that just uh, gave background material that weren't that weren't actually novels. You 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 joke, but Star Wars is a true movie, right? <laughs> it's based, it's so. a galaxy a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, it, there's not a day passes when there aren't references to Star Wars somewhere. I mean, it must be the most culturally, like, like my entire generation has been, and probably before and after several generations, has been affected by Star Wars. And the fact that there's going to be a new one released next year means this is just going to continue for decades. Yeah, I mean, every, every night on Jon Stewart, he, he cracks some Star Wars-related reference. And I mean, I think there's actually um, a nonfiction uh, look, it's been published recently that deals with the phenomenon of Star Wars, how it's sort of infiltrated so many aspects of uh, contemporary culture. Well, it's funny because I'll even tell you in the context of, and and I, I want to get to your the beginnings of your writing career and your personal story and how it came up, but I'll tell you just a little story. When I had a business that was falling apart at one point, I bought a bunch of books related to the Tao of Star Wars and I swear to God, I followed like the, the principles of the force and my business survived as, as stupid as that sounds. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound stupid to me at all, because I, I think that that's part of the reason why this franchise has been so successful, because uh, there, are, there are real guiding principles, you know, down deep, buried inside of it. Yeah, I mean, and George Lucas, I mean, he looked at everything from Joseph Campbell to the Tao to Buddhism, everything to kind of build up the principles of Star Wars and the Force and the arc of the hero and so on. Yes, absolutely true. So, so, so Jim, you started off, if I'm not mistaken, as a carpenter. Is that correct? Uh, 
I went. Well, I went through a lot of the usual uh, job job descriptions. I, I worked as a psychiatric aide. I was a uh, a rock musician on tour with various bands back in the late '60s and early '70s. I sort of uh, segued into into carpentry um, to finance um, a lot of travel that I did in my 20s. I spent about 10 years traveling around the world and would just bounce back into the United States and do carpentry or painting for a while to, gain, to uh, gather enough money to finance a, another excursion. And then um, you were even at one point an astrologer. <laughs> I was. I never took money for it, but I, I became fascinated by astrology and used to do charts for, uh, for my friends and for their, uh, their newborn kids and I had fun with it. Not that I put any real stock in it, but it was uh, an interesting pursuit. When, when did you? What, when did you decide? Okay, now I'm going to try my. I've done everything else. Now I'm going to try my hands at writing a novel and see where it takes me. Uh, it really, the writing came out of the tra- the travel. Um, I started to keep uh, pretty extensive travel journals. Um, I just was fascinated by the people that I would count encounter on the road. I was, of course, you know, taken with all the places that I stumbled into or onto. And um, a couple of my close friends were actually pursuing writing careers. And uh, over the years, I thought, well, maybe there's a story in some of the uh, some of the adventures that I've either heard about or had. And uh, in the late 70s, I turned my hand to it and was lucky enough to have my first novel published in 1980. I mean, a couple of comments there. First, you you say some of your friends were starting careers. I think a lot of people think that they're in the, they're going to be in their cubicle in the office and they're going to write their novel and suddenly they're going to be big and famous and rich. But a writing career is a career. It takes years and years and years and persistence to build up, you know, a repertoire of books and uh, uh, and so on, to actually be known and to make money. Like, did you make yeah, money on it, your it first book? Work. I mean, I you know, I, I garnered all the usual, you know, rejection slips and, uh, you know, revised that first novel probably um, 10 times over the course of two years before it was finally purchased by Ballantine Books. Um, you do have to really work at it, and sometimes hard work isn't even enough. Uh, I know some very, very talented writers whose um, novels have not been able to be marketed. What, why uh, is so, that, you think? Well, I think that, you know, the problem is that, that a lot of it is, is market-driven, and um, if you write a book that, that can't be easily categorized or... A publisher thinks is not going to uh, attract a wide audience. Um, the publisher is just not going to to risk uh, buying it and spending all the money it takes to promote it. I think it's it's much more difficult now than it was when I was coming up in you know the, the late seventies, early eighties. Um, now everyone is in search of an instant bestseller, and it's very difficult for. Uh, first-time writers to break in. Uh, fortunately, there is a lot of e-publishing now and a lot of great stuff on the internet. Uh, so at least people have an outlet. Why do you think people feel now so entitled to have like a bestseller on their first book? <laughs> I, you know, I think that that spans, and that's not only confined to writing. I, I think that, uh, you know, people want to succeed out of the box right now. I don't know why. I don't know why. There's the, the idea of apprenticeship has sort of been pushed aside and, um, you know, people want to find the immediate uh, terrific job or uh, the one that's going to pay the most money or they're going to succeed in their first film. Uh, their first, the first song they write is going to, you know, break all box office records or whatever. So I, I, I think it's, I don't know what it is. I think it's somewhat generational, but I have no real explanation for it. You know, and I think what was very fortunate for you is that your books were able to piggyback on top of these enormous marketing platforms, like let's say Robotech or Star Wars or whatever. And so you you had the benefit of that whole infrastructure, billions of dollars worth of infrastructure behind you. Yeah, I mean, that that's um, it, for some writers, that's a hard choice. I mean, I, I think that there's... Um 
a lot of writers, you know, who consider themselves serious writers, and I'll put that in quotes, um, who were sort of um, disparaging of, of people who do who work for hire, who decide to go into franchise. I mean, I wrote, uh, you know, probably a dozen novels of my own before I finally sort of entered the world of Robotech. That was the first time that I had done any adaptation work. Um, but when I found that, you know, I sort of had some kind of strange skill set that worked for these large universes, um, I just stuck with it. And, you know, that's what happened with Star Wars when Star Wars came up. Uh, you know, I've, I've been writing in Star Wars for more than 12 years now. Yeah, and uh, it's not like... So I've read some of these novels, and I, I've just been reading um, Darth Plagueis, which came out in 2012. Um, you have the, the book I'm going to mention in, a, in, a, in another intro. You have Tarkin... Uh, coming out November 4th about Grand Moff Tarkin. But I, I noticed in, in Darth Plagueis, uh, this is a very literary book, actually. It's not, even though it's within using the characters of, of Star Wars, you could see your own imprint on it, and you're making a lot of decisions that I'm assuming are your own and not necessarily dictated to you by some Star Wars Bible that you have to follow. No, in, in fact, um, there's been very little um, dictating at all. Um, you know, I've been some some novels um, have been pitched to me. Some ideas have been pitched to me, and some novels I've brought to the table in uh, the Star Wars franchise. But um, I've had free reign to to write the novels in the way I see fit. So um, I, I am trying to to write adult Star Wars. Uh, so I don't I don't try and tailor my language or the plots to any particular age group. I, I'm, you know, I know that the readership is broad. You know, I get letters from ten year olds and I get letters from sixty year olds. Uh, so I just write the novels the way I would um, in any piece of fiction that I worked on. Well, you know, I notice it. It's these are not easy to read novels in the sense that there might be you might mention. 50 planets, you know, hundreds of characters, uh, you know, all the characteristics of, you know, dozens of different species. And then we're kind of crisscrossing lots of different plot lines. And it does remind me of, and I, I saw in an interview, you mentioned one of your, your influences is Thomas Pynchon. It does remind me of that almost dense style where, uh, you know, you're dealing with a galaxy here. So ga galaxies aren't simple, just like he would deal with these enormously dense, complicated plots, the actual style of the writing has to be equally, you know, dense and kind of, you know, complicated. And that's what's happening in your books, I, I notice. I try, I've tried to make uh, that galaxy far, far away as, as real as possible. Um, I have been criticized for using you know, too many references. And th those books are very difficult to get into. In fact, uh, if you're not a Star Wars fan, I I've had, you know, a lot of friends say, you know, I, tr I tried to read your book and I gave up after the second page. Does that suck because, when someone says that? <laughs> uh, no, because I totally get it. Because, you know, these these books are set in a, in a completely, in an alternate universe. And if you haven't, um, there's no easy entry point. You know, so now, uh, you know, 20 years of publishing, um, you've, got to, you've got to come to these books with a little bit of knowledge of the universe. Um, I, you know, we're all trying to make an attempt now to simplify it a bit, to make, it, to make these books and some of these side projects a little bit more accessible to, uh, to new readers. But, you know, there's a really hardcore fan base that, you know, will call me on every mistake. So I've got to be very careful, and and I try to write. Um, I try to I try to write a little bit to that fan base. I want the ones who've who've been loyal readers to really uh, get the most that they can out of the books. Well, because life itself is complicated, and you're dealing with all these issues of not only this mystical power of the the force, but 
kind of empire politics and economics and, you know, the relationships between different species. There's really very, very few ways I could imagine that you simplify it without it becoming childlike. Yeah, definitely don't want to make it childlike. Um, but it, but it is interesting to me that, you know, you, you look back at a new hope, you know, back in 1977, uh, which was, you know, kind of a, a pulp science fiction adventure and, uh, just where this franchise has come since then. Uh, so many things were hinted at in those, uh, the, the, those first three films that it enabled, you know, we writers and other people have contributed to just com- continue to flesh out this universe and make it a, almost a living thing. Well, it's interesting. Someone once explained to me there's there's two types of paintings. There's one like, there's paintings like the Mona Lisa where everything is within, everything you need to know is within the picture. And then there's other paintings where there's things going off, you know there's things happening outside of the frame of the picture. And Star Wars is definitely like that, where so many things, there are so many backstories and forward stories, it, it gives you almost infinite material to write novels around it. It's, it's really true. I mean, there's so many lines, and even in that first film, that, that make you wonder, what, what is the Kessel Run? You know, and what are these, you know, Corellian ships? And just all, all, the, all the throwaway lines uh, open up uh, all all kinds of speculation. So I, I really uh, you know think that uh, Lucas was masterful in in creating that that film the way he did. You know he had all this backstory, but he he sort of trimmed it away to give us the adventure, but hinted that it's taking place in an enormous enormous sphere. Well, and and one of the most critical backstories you deal with in your next novel, Tarkin. But first, I want to ask you. When you're writing these books, are you just kind of, do you, do you just sort of sit down and write and you're making stuff up? Or do you have kind of this huge whiteboard where you have post-it notes and everything to kind of keep track of all the things you're going to write about? <laughs> uh, it's, a li- it's actually a little bit of both. I mean, I, um, I spend a lot of time just kind of, you know, daydreaming the story, just thinking through uh, where I want to go, then there's kind of an intermediate phase where I begin to do research, not only um, lo- looking at previous novels or, or looking at the vast amount of uh, material that's already been created for the franchise, but also uh, real world, you know, people, places, whatever that I think that I can uh, draw from. And then I... Um, I've gotten in the habit of uh, just walking around with the story. I don't. I don't really sit down and write a word until I can. Until I know the story backwards and forwards, I can tell it to myself. I can hear all the dialogue. Um, I feel like I know the characters, and then I'll actually uh, sit in front of the word processor and get going. So there might be months where you're not writing at all. You're just thinking and researching. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And do do you feel though that several month break reduces your writing skills? Like you have to get back into it a little bit. Every it's funny. I mean, even after all these years, every book is like the first book. Hmm. There's always there's always that period in the first couple of uh, weeks of writing where I'm going. I don't know how to do this. I can't remember how to do this. But uh, you know, it's, that's where the. Uh, the sweat comes into it. You just have to stick with it and, and break through that initial period of uncertainty. And then you remember, oh, yeah, I know that chord. I remember how to do that. Uh, so it gets, uh, gets easier and easier once you get into it. And then, and then do you write every day after that? Like, do you have kind of a goal for yourself, a thousand words a day or ten pages a day? Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not that much of a stickler, but I am a kind of monomaniac when I get into, when I get into a book. I mean, it's, it's with me like a low grade fever, uh, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm sort of in, in the book. Um, I write, uh, I write in the afternoon. I don't wake up and jump right into it. I get my day going with other things and then I'll usually devote the afternoon to writing. And if I do, a thousand words that I'm content with, that's fine. If it's a great day and I turn out 4,000 words, that's a blessing. Um, so I, but I just stick with it. 
Um, the other thing about writing these books is I don't have, I usually don't have a long time to sit with them, which, which I lament, really. Like with Dark Plagueis, um, because of the way that book developed and all sorts of different events that surround it, I had several years to spend with that book. Right, because first like they canceled it. Books, yeah, and, and that, that's a whole side story that you know we can talk about. But um, generally, I have about a year to, you know, mm. I've got to think through. I've got to, you know, meet with uh, people at Lucasfilm. We discuss certain aspects of the story. Uh, then I've got to sit down and create, create the story. It has to be submitted in outline form to Lucasfilm so we all are literally on the same page about where the story is going. And uh, then I do my little daydreaming and research, and then I write furiously to, to meet a deadline. And, then, and it's really not for everybody. You've really got to... Um, that deadline thing is not for every writer. And then every step of the way, are they trying to say, okay, this fits within the Star Wars universe, or this doesn't fit within the Star Wars universe, so you can't say that? No, not at all. Um, generally, generally speaking, you know, once uh, once we've talked about the project, um, then it's up to me to create an outline. And once uh, that outline has been looked at and uh, accepted, uh, then I'm on my own. They don't they don't come back and you know I mean there is there is a little bit of editing that goes on you know after the manuscript is is submitted. There may be things that they want me to change. There may be things um, they want maybe additional scenes or um, to include a character that I hadn't I hadn't thought about. But really, there's been there's very little in the way of um, uh, I don't know intervention of that sort. Well, there's so many things I want to kind of like, you, you keep giving me things I want to veer off to, but I want to reel it back a little bit. You mentioned you went to um, that first episode of Star Wars in 1977, uh, A New Hope, with a friend of yours. The first, it was the first Star Wars movie. The friend was Brian Daly, correct? Who, who wrote many of the original post-Star Wars novels about Han Solo. That's right. Brian and I were were very close friends. Uh, he's one of the he's one of the people that I sort was sort of referenced when I said friends were were working on novels because Brian was working on his uh, his first fantasy novel at that point. Um, we knew very little about Star Wars going in, but we just uh, were both just blown away by what uh, what we experienced. And Brian, and, you know, ironically, Brian would go on to be the person who really did the first tie-in novels. He wrote three uh, Han Solo novels back in the uh, late 70s. Did you, um, could you guys have imagined... Being read. Oh, could you what? guys have imagined when you went to that first Star Wars uh, movie that you would be so involved in the Star Wars universe in the decades to come? <laughs> Well, I never gave it a thought because at that point in my writing, I was writing mass market. I wasn't even a, I wasn't a science fiction writer, and I had no interest in in writing science fiction. But um, Brian, just a hardcore comic book fan, just you know, read had read every science fiction novel from you know when, when he was nine years old. I mean, it's just totally involved in it. Um, it was a dream come true for him, and. Um, it was very interesting for me um, to act as kind of a sounding board for his ideas when he was writing the Han Solo trilogy, uh, because it sort of kept me very close to Star Wars and also uh, was very in instructive in terms of seeing how you know Brian worked as a writer. Um, it was very interesting. I mean, I knew that uh, Darth Vader was Luke's father long before most people did, because Brian was told that. Uh, that's really interesting. Imagine me as I remember literally, I think it was seventh or eighth grade when Darth Vader reveals he's Luke's father. And I'm thinking to myself, first, I was thinking to myself, oh, my God. And then I'm thinking to myself the worst feeling, which is that now I'm going to have to wait years to find out what <laughs> happens next. That was just horrible. That's right. But that's the brilliance, right? That's before you could just... Um you know, marathon, watch every episode of a TV show or anything like that. You had to wait. I feel like George Lucas was cruel to, like, millions of 13-year-olds who just needed to know. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so yeah, but you know, he never knew whether you know he he was as shocked as anybody that the first film succeeded in the way he did. It could have been a one-off, you know, but it just uh, he hit the right notes and <laughs> it was all gold from then on. So let's say so so. Uh, again, so many different questions. Like right now, the next Star Wars movie is coming out in, um, I guess, 2015. They're already starting to to shoot it. They've already been planning out the sets and the actors and so on. Uh, I assume the movie's either written or, or mostly written. How is this going to affect kind of the um, continuity of the post Star Wars universe? A lot of which you either oversaw or wrote with the new Jedi Order. Like, uh, from what I understand, in this next movie, Luke Skywalker comes back after a 30-year disappearance, but you have him in the new Jedi Order <laughs> all around there 20 years later, 26 years later. Right. right. Uh, well, first of all, I know nothing about the, uh, the new movie. Um, but Damn. I, 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 am, <laughs> I have high hopes for it. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, we're left with the same sort of situation that uh, fans of Star Trek are left for, um, with one with one difference. The new the new Star Trek movies uh, are literally an alternate universe, um, so they can go where they want without being in real conflict with the existing continuity. So with Star Wars, I think just going to have to have the same sort of mindset that there are. Uh, two two parallel universes here, and uh, you know it's up to it's up to the fans, I think, to decide how they're going to work through that. I, I try not to think too much because I give myself a headache. You know, the good thing is a lot of the prequel stuff probably will still last in that they're probably not going to touch that, although who knows in the future. But there's so many opportunities for, for spin-off movies for them anyway, you know, once they get started. Yeah, I think there's there's going to be a ton of opportunities. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really eager to see what J.J. Um, Abrams and his, and his crew uh, are going to come up with because undoubtedly there's going to be a ton of material that can be um, spun off into novels and other projects just just based on this new trilogy. And they don't call you at all for, hey, what should we what should we do about these new, where do the new Jedi Knights come from? They don't like, they don't ask you for advice? <laughs> I wish. I wish. You know, it's, it's interesting because there's a real, there's sort of uh, the novelists on one side and then the uh, movie and TV people on the other side. And, and there's no crossover. Uh, I don't know of any novelists that have, you know, done any uh, scripting for even like the Clone Wars TV show or the upcoming uh, Rebels or the uh, present Rebels. Um, you know, and, the, and the, movie, the movies are being done by, you know, very, very highly respected screenwriters. So oh, no, they don't call me. <laughs> so so let's say someone's a, a a new aspiring writer and they love Star Wars and they want to get into it. How would they start writing their own Star Wars novels? You know, do they have to get permission? Do they have to outline stuff? Like, how does somebody get into this now? The way you're into it. Well, every um, writer that's been selected for the franchise has something of a track record, you know, um, published novels, um, of their own. Um, you know, this is a licensed property. So you, you either have to write fan fiction, you know, which you can publish online. There's plenty of sites for that, but to, to work in the franchise, you've got to have, um, some novels, you know, under your belt. You've got, you've got to have a track record of some sort and um, then I guess you could appeal to your agent, to, you know, to make you to uh, get your agent to let the people at Lucasfilm know that you'd be interested, or the people at Del Rey know that you're interested in writing. Uh, but a lot of the writers have have been chosen, you know, rather than um, come come to Star Wars. So they've been they've been kind of handpicked by Del Rey and Lucasfilm. Interesting. So how many novels had you written before you realized, hey, I can maybe make a living at this. This is this is going to be good for me. 
Uh, you mean outside of Star Wars? Just, yeah, uh, when you were first starting. Well, the first, um, that first novel back in 1980, you know, I got a small advance and uh, I, I knew that I was going to have to keep doing carpentry if I was going to, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be able to subsist on what I was going to make as a writer. Things changed for me in um, the early 80s, or I guess in the mid-80s, when there was a, there was a television, uh, animated TV show on called um, Adventures of the Galaxy Rangers. And Brian, my friend Brian Daly, was uh, intimately involved with the series and was writing scripts for it. And he convinced me to, to submit a script for the show. And that script was purchased. And then um, I went on to write seven scripts for the show. Um, and it was, a, it was a nice payday. And right off the heels of that, because Brian and I had worked closely together on Galaxy Rangers, uh, came Robotech. Um, and the notion of adapting this then very popular uh, anime into a series of novels. Uh, so that kept me busy for the next couple of years without having to go back to carpentry. And from then on, it was just... Uh, uh, I was able to survive as a writer. I had my own works, and then you know, 2000 and 2000 came along. Uh, Star Wars. I got into Star Wars, and it's been good ever since. You know, it, it shows the importance of two things. One is, you know, there's this saying: you're the average of the five people you keep closest around you. So clearly, you and Brian Daly were supporting each other, in, in you know, kind of in career-wise and helping each other and this is this is a critical thing like you you can't you can't do it on your own you everybody needs kind of a scene to grow up in like you see with the the beatniks for instance jack kerouac allen ginsburg william burroughs they they sort of grew up together and you and brian daly sort of grew up in fantasy and science fiction together yeah i absolutely believe that i i really believe that you know if you are lucky enough to fall into a you know a crew of like-minded people that you have a much greater chance i've seen it in music i've certainly seen it in writing i've seen it in among um, painters you know artists that i know um this is very important because you do you you have that support network. I mean, even even fledgling uh, comics, you know, stand up comics talk about this. How it's really important to be with a like minded group. Sure. Uh, otherwise, you're just you're an outlier. You know, you're out there on your own. And you're struggling with with no feedback, with no sense of how to go about doing these things. And you know, then there's always you know connections that occur. You know, it's interesting. There's there's a brand new book by Walter Isaacson called The Innovators, and it's about essentially the history of computers and computing. And he makes a very clear distinction between the guys who all worked together to create the first computer and then guys who were off in Iowa trying to create a computer, but they didn't have their scene or their people to work with. And they had very different results. And it was the people who worked as a group and even gave each other credit uh, that, that rose up the highest. Yeah. That's that's absolutely true. Um, I've never pr participated in any writers groups. Um, they probably serve, you know, a similar function. Although it's not like um, you're among your friends and watching your friends either succeed or fail, and um, you know, supporting each other. There, it's more. Uh, critical analysis of your work and, and, uh, and things of that nature, more sort of academic. Um, so, but I, I do believe that, you know, if you're going to pursue any, any art or, you know, even computer, computer science or anything like that, that being among the right group of people is going to be beneficial. You know, and then the other thing you brought up, essentially, without bringing it up, is persistence. Like you said, after your first novel and your first advance, you had to get back to carpentry. And maybe that happened after the second novel or the third novel. But, you know, not many people write five novels or ten novels before they say, oh, okay, this is the way I'm going to go. Like, what kept you persistent, other than, of course, a love for it? Uh, I think that's exactly, that's it, really. Um, it was just um, a passion, you know, a desire to, to, 
tell stories. I, I mean, I, I grew up loving books, loving, um, you know, movies and all sorts of uh, adventurous stories and, and wanted to be able to contribute in any way that I could. Um, but you do need persistence. I just read this great um, biographical piece on Elmore Leonard. You know, and, he, and he's, he's another example of someone who just stuck with it. He was working in advertising, and he was writing these westerns. And, uh, you know, not making a lot of money, but he loved doing it. Um, and then eventually turned to these, you know, <laughs> these great crime caper books that have, you know, turned him into an icon. Yeah, he's um, considered maybe the years best. In years before he succeeded. Yeah, he's maybe now considered the best crime novelist ever. He, I, he is for my, for my money. You know, so, so I want to geek out a little bit and talk about your, your next book, which is about, which is called Tarkin and it's about Grand Moff Tarkin. And I, and if, as long as, you know, so just to remind people, he's the guy who was kind of commandeering the construction of the Death Star in the very first movie, Star Wars. And he basically dies when, Luke Skywalker, you know, comes out of nowhere from Darth Vader's point of view and destroys the Death Star. So what made you decide to take this character and make a novel out of him? Well, he, you know, he, he grew, he grew more interesting to me as the other, um, when the other film, when the, when the film that followed came out, because in the first film, you know that Vader was, a powerful force, but you don't really understand just how powerful Vader is until you get into Empire Strikes Back and, you know, the, the third film. But, uh, and so here's Tarkin in the first movie who, who literally seems to be the one holding Vader's leash. And, um, you know, I, I kept thinking, how, who is this guy that he has command of the Empire's most powerful weapon and he's not he, he's not intimidated at all by the Dark Lord of the Sith. So when the chance came to explore his character, um, you know, I, I jumped at it. Well, you know, uh, you know, it, to me, and to maybe many Star Wars fans, I don't know. To me, it almost seemed like a later contradiction or mistake when you realize how important and powerful Darth Vader is. Why? What? Like it almost seems like they made a mistake in star Wars by having this, this kind of normal guy, Tarkin, uh, you know, he's the one who tells Vader to stop when Vader's, you know, choking one of the guys over there. So, so, so like you think later on, well, why, why did that guy have that power? Was that a mistake? That's what, that's what Tarkin, that's what the novel explores. Do you think the novel really explores their, their early, relationship so, so and how it is that they seem to be on parity so so it, it seems like what you're doing with the novel is you're almost kind of um stitching up the mistake but do you think george lucas initially made a mistake by having tarkin almost have more power than than vader in the beginning there well i don't think he had um necessarily more power you know i mean we, we didn't really know and I'm not sure George Lucas even knew how how the Empire actually functioned. You know, I think that those those first three movies were very organic in the sense that, you know, George had a lot of stuff planned, but if he if he came upon a better idea, what he thought was a better idea, he changed what he had. So I think that um, the whole brother sister you know, thing, for instance. Yeah, yeah. When you read the early scripts, you see that he did it. He he uh, monkeyed with things all the time. He he changed things as he went along. I think there were things that he discovered in the second movie. I mean, if he had, if he had had the time to go back and change something in the first, he might have. But you know, they were an ongoing process. So I didn't really. I don't think it was you know a contradiction to have uh, Tarkin uh, seen the leader of the two of them. I, I mean, I felt that they were sort of on the same ground, but they had different job descriptions, as it were. Right. Interesting. Vader was kind of the Empire's terror weapon, and Tarkin was the commander of this massive battle fortress. Right. And it was, um, and so you explore in this next book, 
kind of his rise to power. And you you briefly mention, I guess, his his uncle or or somebody related to him in Darth Plagueis, your your last book or your second to last book. Um, and Tarkin's kind of descended from that guy. So we start to get hints of where he's coming from in terms of the aristocracy of the of the Empire. Yeah, this I mean you could you could read uh Tarkin as kind of an origins uh story. Um uh, because I do go back um into Tarkin's actually all the way back to his childhood to to sort of give a sense of how he came to be uh <laughs> this kind of monster in the empire. Um, he, he is, uh, he seems like an aristocrat, but actually he's a bit of a, um, he comes from a kind of a backwater planet. So he's got a very, I think a very interesting, uh, tale. Now, um, do you plan any other novels outside the star Wars universe? Or, or do you think the new movies are going to open up a whole new, new bunch of novels for you? Um, I sort of, I'm on a kind of uh, wait, wait and see. I mean, I'm in sort of a wait and see phase on that. I, I really don't know. Um, I did, there's, you know, I don't have anything planned. I haven't been commissioned to write anything. Um, I think we're all waiting to see at this point exactly where things go. Well, now, now, now that Disney owns things, do you think that there's kind of different channels you're going to have to go through or, uh, you know, maybe they're not going to do outside novels. Uh, I don't think that that's going to be the case. Mm. I think that uh, D- Disney is uh, is eager to pursue this. They realize that there's a you know a, there's a nice large fan base out there uh, who, who uh, you know who really enjoy reading these stories that extend extend the reach of the films. Uh, so I, I think they're going to be interested in in um, in writing, not you know, in, in publishing novels and keeping this going, um, we just don't know yet because you know there isn't a lot of information about the new movies, and uh, so we don't even have a sense of you know which characters can be spun off into their own series or anything like that. And you know, it would be interesting to see a movie or a novel just about the young Yoda. And I know there's been some mention of him in various. I don't know if there's ever been one novel about. Just Yoda, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, there, there is a novel called Dark Rendezvous, which was set during the Clone Wars. That's probably the closest um, someone will come to be able, able to read a book uh, focused on Yoda. And I, I know that there's going to be these, um, there are going to be movies that are going to be in between, um, released in between the movies of the new trilogy. Oh, really? And I heard talk that, what, yeah, and I, I did hear something that one of them could be about Yoda. Wow, so they're going to go way into the past and do kind of like uh, an in-between movie. I've, that's very interesting. Well, you know, they might. I mean, you know, there are all these, again, there are all these characters that are that are sort of ripe for exploration, like Boba Fett and, and Yoda and even Count Dooku. I mean, there's so many places they could go. Young Han Solo. Yeah, sort of like young Indiana Jones. Right, right. So, so and again, this is kind of a, a geeking out sort of question, but what actually is the difference between the dark side of the force and the light side of the force? <laughs> and you, you start yeah, to explain it very that, well. In, in, I wish that, uh, you know, George Lucas could, you know, be the third party in this conversation <laughs> to really, really uh, tell us the truth. I mean, I think it has to, what, what George has said is that the difference between the two is that the light side of the force, for lack of a better term, is about compassion. So uh, this is this is one of the reasons why a a dark lord could never survive death in the way that character that um, some of the Jedi do. Yoda, Obi Wan, uh, even Anakin, because there was. Uh, this bit of compassion in all of them. Hmm. Uh, but then, you know, in, in Darth uh, Plagueis, you mentioned also um, they're trying to explain, you know, the Sith Lords are trying to explain the differences, and the, you suggest that the light side is more about 
kind of submission to the flow of the force, almost like a, a Taoist sort of approach, whereas the Sith Lords are, are trying to enhance their abilities to control this universal power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very Taoist in that sense. Um, you know, feeling the force and, and being in tune with the force is a light side. Trying to manipulate the force uh, for your own for your own ends um, will take you to the dark side. And what do you think, like, why do you think George Lucas sold the franchise to Disney? I, I mean, I know it was a lot of money, but it was about $4 billion, which I'm just assuming the very next movie is going to bring in $4 billion. So he, it's sort of like he gave up on a lot of upside here. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, um, it seems like he... I think it was, you know, I think something like this is so all-encompassing that it's it's hard to, um, I don't think he felt, I think he felt perhaps that he couldn't move on unless he did this. You know, there are other things, there are many other things that George Lucas is interested in pursuing. And um, he kind of, you know, like the Godfather, kept getting dragged back into Star Wars with the Clone Wars and, you know, with Rebels and everything else. And I think maybe some of it was just, I need to just divorce myself from this so that I can attend to some other of my interests. I mean, I'm, I'm just totally speculating. I, I have no idea what, you know, why he did it. I mean, you know, the other possibility is he just got sick of all the criticism that uh, was swirling around the prequels, you know, which not everybody appreciated. You know, I like the prequels, actually. Like, I, I'm a fan of the prequels. Because I think it got like much more into the Force yeah. aspects. Yeah, I, I like them too. Um, but you know, a lot of a lot. There was a lot of criticism. You know, all that stuff swirling around. You know, Jar Jar Binks and the rest of it. Uh, but but I really don't think that it was that he was, um, you know, forced out because you know of criticism. I think that he just wanted to move on to other things in his life. Now, the one area where I've seen you critical of the prequels is in the Midichloridians, or however you pronounce it, as being kind of these cellular organisms that determine how much force power someone has. But I think you kind of, in your novels, kind of explain it away in a good way, that they're just kind of translating the force as opposed to being the source of the force. Yeah, they're sort of, um, the way I, I like to think of them is they're sort of these envoys to the Force. I mean, the more midichlorians that one has, the more um, easily it is for someone to access the Force. They're like, uh, you know, angels to God or something like that. But I mean, I, I, the, the problem that um, a lot of fans have with this idea is it's just sort of the idea of midichlorians steals a little bit of the magic away from the force. Um, it makes it, there's too much sort of science all of a sudden, um, you know, under, as an underpinning uh, for the force. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that Star Wars fans really don't want to know, that they really want to leave mysterious. I was just reading before we, um, <laughs> for our phone call here, I was reading about all the, the jokes that are circulating about the revelation of, of Palpatine's first name, which which happens in Tarkin. Um, yeah, so, he's like uh, Sheev, right? Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, so some things you have to wonder, well, maybe maybe that should have been kept a secret, but, you know, the, I, my first impression when I, when I heard that name was that's really a curious um, choice. It was a curious choice on George's part, and that's certainly, you know, he... He had that name for a long time, and it wasn't that he wasn't going to reveal it. In fact, there was um, a, a live-action television show in which that name, that, that would have been revealed. Um, but the more I started to, to look at the name, the more I realized, well, this is George just, you know, playing a little bit on, you know, Sanskrit and, you know, um, Palpatine coming from Naboo. Uh, a lot of the names there are sort of have a Sanskrit or Hindi um, origin, even Padme. So the, uh, I started to warm to it. I don't, ha I don't have a problem with it that a lot of people <laughs> seem to be having. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it's, I guess you could say it's related to Shiva, the god of destruction in, in Hindu. Yeah, I, it, there's there's that. There's, uh, you know, there's also the idea of, it's very close to Shiv, S-H-E-A-V-E, which means sort of to gather, you know, to gather together or collect in one place. There's also the closeness to Shiv, you know, the, a prison weapon. So I think it can work uh, on a lot of levels. I think it'll just take time for the hardcore fans to kind of get used to the fact that it is now canon. Well, so so Jim, Tarkin is coming out November 4th. I'm assuming they're going to have a great marketing plan for it. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Um, I've been enjoying all of your other books. Uh, I hope you keep writing Star Wars novels even after the, the new movies come out. Well, that's very kind of you, James. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate you coming on this call. It's like, uh, when it's for me, like you said, you went to this Star Wars and it, it you went with your friend and it blew you guys away. And now here you are, uh, you know, you've written so much. It's been so much a part of your career. I, I Star Wars blew me away when I went to see it. And I remember coming home and trying to describe the story to my dad. So I was like eight years old and my dad was like, Oh, it's always boring when people try to describe movie plots to me. And I was begging, I was begging him, please let me tell you, this is like the greatest movie ever. So, so so it's an honor to be able to, to speak to you about it. Well, I've had a great time talking to you, James. Thanks very much, Jim, and good luck. Tarkin's coming out November 4th. I'm, I'm definitely going to get it, so good luck with it, and, and thanks again. Thanks so much. Bye, Jim. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.